are in the sixth chapter of Luke. You might turn there. We're kind of uh, turning a corner in Luke, um, kind of a transitional period. Life sometimes has transitions, and those transitions can be good if we can embrace them and engage in them. I was thinking this week about, uh, I guess it was about five years ago, I was in a place in life, and maybe you've been there, where, you know, I was just thinking about uh, the way I was living, and with, with my job, um, there's a lot of sitting, um, a lot of studying, that kind of stuff, and I really felt like I wasn't getting enough exercise, I needed to get up more and out more, and I really wasn't doing anything at the time. So I started thinking about, like, what would I do, and, and running just seemed like a great thing. I'd never been a runner, never been part of that, not in high school or anything, but I thought, oh, you know, that, that would be good exercise, I should, I should take up running, so uh, I read a book on running. Uh, watched a couple videos on running. Um, I talked to some people who ran. I watched a movie on running, uh, Forrest Gump. Did you see that? Uh, and uh, <laughs> that was a point. And um, so anyways, like all this stuff, you know, all the whole stuff, I even, I even went down and, you know, thought, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna watch some people run and all that stuff. But I just didn't run. And one day I remember thinking, I gotta, I gotta start running. And you actually, actually put on the shoes and go out and start running, right? So that I, it wouldn't just be like, you know, thinking about it or planning it, but actually doing that. And sometimes in life, it's hard for us to make the, the jump from what we know we should do to actually doing it, to getting out there. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, we're kind of, we're, we're turning a corner. A lot of what we've talked about so far has been come and see, right? Jesus like, come and, come and listen to his teaching and, and come and see his miracles and, and look at his character and, and, and listen to the things he says and the things he teaches. So a lot of people have been coming and a lot of people have been listening and seeing what Jesus is doing. Hundreds, even thousands of people at a time. But now we're gonna have a transition from come and see to go and follow Right? To start, to, to lacing up the shoes, <laughs> to putting our faith into action, and to, and to getting out there and to following Jesus into the world. This is the transition that we're about to make. And the great thing about transitioning from come and see to go and follow is that God never calls us to go and follow alone. We always do it in community. We always do it in teams. We talk about this a lot, but, but see, God... God calls us into community. None of, none of you came to Christ all on your lonesome, you know, like one day you just woke up and you were suddenly smarter than the day before and now you decided, I'm gonna, I'm gonna become a Christ follower. There were people who prayed for you and people who invested in you and people who invited and then once you came to Christ, you, you, you came into a community. You were born into a family. And then once we start following Jesus, one of the things that God often calls us to do in, is to be involved in different teams in life, if you will. Like you were born into a team. It was called your family. Because God didn't want you to just be born and you didn't try to figure it out all on your own. So he gave you a family. That's a team. Some of you got married. That's a team. Some of you, you know, come to church and we're, we're a team here. We're a family. Sometimes we break down into smaller teams. There's a team next door right now and they're ministering to our kids. There's a team up here earlier leading worship. There was a team of people out there who were greeting you as you came in, team of people who got coffee ready today and work with our youth and these teams. And the great thing is God calls us 
to do what we do together as a team. We follow Jesus together. We proclaim Jesus together. We grow and we serve together. And today, we're going to talk about six principles for gospel teamwork. And some sermons are just really focused, like really just about one thing, and some are kind of wide. This is kind of wide, because this is a topic we're going to come back to a lot. But today, we're just kind of casting a wide net. We're going to look at a few verses that we read this morning and just talk about in general, what do they teach us? about the way that we follow Jesus together, about the teams, the teams of people that we unite with. Well, the first principle is this, and this is nothing new. We talk about this all the time. You always pray first. So, I mean, we could just say in general, every sermon could pretty much start with this, pray first. It's just a good idea. Before you ever get on a team, before you ever, you know, agree with some other people to do something, before you, you know, get into relationships, get married, all this stuff, it's always a good idea to pray first. This is what Jesus does in verse 12. Here's how our passage starts. In these days, uh, he went out to the mountain to pray. So last week we talked about the Sabbath and those stories. And now we're moving on. Jesus goes to a mountain to pray and all night, he continued in prayer all night to pray to God. Now Jesus has a big decision to make. And here's what you'll notice, this pattern in scripture is that right before Jesus has a big decision or something to do, he always gets away by himself to be with the Father. So he's got a big decision to make. He's got to pick 12 guys who are going to be his apostles. And so, I mean, he's got hundreds, maybe thousands of people at this point to choose from. So he gets alone with the Father and they kind of, you know, they talk it out. Jesus, Jesus prays for a while. Sometimes people are like, how can you pray all night? Well, because prayer is not just talking. God, it's listening. So Jesus talks for a while and listens to the Father for a while. He's part of the Trinity. He's got that relationship going on. So maybe they're talking about guys and they've got hundreds and thousands of people on the roster to think about, you know, and, and maybe, you know, the Father's like, hey, you know, you should choose Peter. And Jesus' like, really, Peter? Like, that guy's like flashpoint, you know, like he's really impetuous. And, you know, maybe they're, the father's like, you know, you should choose Thomas. And Jesus is like, yeah, I don't, I, I doubt it. You know, <laughs> like, I don't know. Thomas like, Judas? Really? Judas? Iscariot? So he prays. He gets away from all the noise of the world. Now again, you know, we, we talk about this all the time. My question is, how much do you, do you do it? Turn off the phone, turn off the laptop, Jesus isn't like on Facebook, you know, asking his friends, who should I pick? You know, like right in the comment section, you know, who I should pick to be my disciples. And see, when we make decisions, we should always start with God. Talk to him, be quiet and listen to him. Get into the, to the word, give God some time to lead you. This is, a, this is a common practice for Jesus. Now, that's different than the way a lot of Christians today make decisions. And, I, and that is a lot of us make decisions this way. We decide what we want to do and then we pray for God to bless it, right? So we, we, we decide what we want to do and then God needs to come in and fix it because we made a mistake. Here's a, here's a different way of doing it. Pray first, right? Before you ask someone out on a date, pray Try praying first about it. Before you decide what school to go to, what classes to attend, pray about it first. Before you take that job, before you say that thing, before you buy that thing, before you take that opportunity, right, don't, don't make your decision and then pray. See, here's a, here's a few telltale signs that we didn't pray first. Like, when we have to pray for God to bless it. So I was thinking about it this week. Like, if I, if I, 
prayed first and I got God's take on what to do and I made a decision, would I really need to ask God to bless something that was his will? It's kind of a fun, I thought a lot about this week. I'm like, you know, when we're walking in God's will, you don't have to ask God to bless his will. When you prayed first, you know, and you know you're where God wants you to be, you don't need to pray for that. But if you're not sure, right, then we start to pray, well, God, come in and bless it because I'm, you know, I'm not sure you, you, you want to. Not sure you, or God, can you come in and fix this thing? Because I jumped in first. And see, what I've learned is the way that you make decisions today will impact the way you face life's problems tomorrow. Because every decision that you make in life and every road you choose to go down, it's always going to have some, some, some problems, some roadblocks, some issues. That goes without saying. But when we, when we choose a path in life and we don't, we don't pray first and, and then we have the problems and have the issues and we lack peace and we're full of anxiety, we, we don't know what to do. It, it leads sometimes to having, sometimes I'll have conversations with people who'll say, you know, pastor, pray for, pray for my marriage or pray for my job or pray for this. And I'll, you know, I'll, we'll sit down and I'll say, well, you know, yeah, we can pray, but, you know, why don't you just move forward? And sometimes people say, well, I don't even know how I'm supposed to be in this marriage or be in this job because I, I never really prayed about it. I just did what I wanted to do. See, the way you make decisions today will impact the way you face life's problems tomorrow. I had a chance recently to sit down with a guy who was candidating at a church and he was asking for some advice on how to candidate at a church. Uh, they were gonna, he's gonna preach and then they were gonna vote on him and I told him this. I said, you know, you need to just pray, pray, pray. And it'll be a little annoying for your church if you pray a lot. And here's what I mean. Like, so, so when I was gonna candidate at Gateway, I prayed a lot. I was able to pray a lot because Gateway had a, candidate, a list of candidates and so um, they had to get through all of those before they got to me. Like they, you know, people said no and then I was like the last one on their list so they finally got to me and I was able to be like, yeah, I prayed about this a lot and then I, I, I came and I preached, you know, and I prayed a lot about that and then the church voted and then, and then I got a call and the church said, hey, it was a unanimous vote. We want you to come be our pastor. Will you do it? And I said, well, I don't know. I need to pray about it. And I remember somebody on the deacon board said, well, didn't you already pray about it? It's like, yeah, I did, but I'm gonna pray some more. So I took a couple of days like to pray about it because I wanted to give God one more chance to go... No. So when I'm, when I'm talking to this guy the other day, I'm like, yeah, whatever you do, no matter what the vote is, don't say yes right away. Don't do it. Pray about it some more. Pray some more. Give God a chance. Now let me tell you why I feel like that was so important. Because I knew that there would come a day at, at this church where I would start to wonder, am I supposed to be here? Was I supposed to do this? When, when, when things get hard, when things get tough, and, and when those days come, I'm always able to look back and go, you know what? I prayed this thing up one side, down the other. Yes, I know. And so, you know, it gives you peace. It gives you confidence. It gives you assurance. Pray first. Here's the second thing. When we talk about, you know, teamwork and being involved in teams, you should always pray before you join up with people uh, to do anything. But the second thing is this. When you're trying to figure out how you're going to serve God, right? Look for God's calling. This is really, really important. In verse 13, and when day came, Jesus called his disciples. That was, that was hundreds of people were his disciples at this point. Big group of people. And he chose from them, he chose 12. And then he named them apostles. So when Jesus puts together a team, he doesn't, uh, you know, use a nominating committee. Um, he doesn't like take a congregational vote. Hand, you know, hand, Peter, anyone? 
Anyone, you know, he, he doesn't like get on LinkedIn and see. So I, I like got on LinkedIn this week. I do not get LinkedIn. Like I kept getting invitations from people that, you know, join my network on LinkedIn and people were getting mad at me because I wouldn't do it. But it was because I wasn't on LinkedIn. So I got on LinkedIn and now I'm really sorry I did because I have no idea what it is. But anyways, Jesus didn't do any of that stuff. He just called his disciples according to his sovereign wisdom. And Jesus is just like, I really know you guys really well. So I'm going to decide Who's going to serve in which way? Today, Jesus still, he still calls us to serve on different teams in, in different ways. Now, some of the ways that God leads us so that we know where we're supposed, because you might be here right now going, well, should I be next door right now, serving on the, in the kids' team? Should I be in the nursery right now? Should I be handing out bulletins? Should I be working with youth? Well, God gives us some clues. First of all, <clears throat> the Bible says he gives us abilities. We call them spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians 12, uh, Romans 12, Ephesians 4 talks a little bit about those gifts and what they are and how they work. God gives you, he'll give you special opportunities that he won't give anyone else. They're just for you. He'll put you in certain situations, in certain relationships. Sometimes God will put you on teams within the gathered church to serve. Sometimes it'll be out in our neighborhoods, maybe in, in homes or schools or at work. But here's the thing, as a church I, you need to understand this. We don't, we don't make leaders here. We don't call leaders. We simply recognize leaders and train them and support them. But only God does the calling. And sometimes when God calls you to serve in some way on a, on a team, it's obvious. He'll, he'll make it clear to you. Maybe you're reading your Bible. Sometimes people come to me and say, I was doing my devotions today, and God just clearly spoke to me and said, I need to go help out with youth or I need to hand out bulletins or whatever it is. Sometimes it's through prayer. Sometimes it's through a sermon or the insight of another person. But sometimes it's just obvious. We know where we need to be serving God. Sometimes it's more like trial and error, which is okay as well. I mean, sometimes we feel like God's calling me and, you know, like, uh, you know, maybe, maybe feel like God's calling you to, to, to work with kids, you know, and then you go try it and it turns out you don't really like kids and they don't really like you, you know. So you're like, now, you know, what do I do? Did I fail? No, you didn't fail. You're just learning. God's just directing you, right? And so sometimes it's trial and error and, and we get back up again, you know, and, and we try the next thing that God's, you know, leading us to do and we trust God. That God will eventually help us find where it is that we're, we're to serve. And sometimes it's just not what you, it's not what you're gonna expect. In fact, often it's not. Uh, I went to, to college with um, the, the goal of becoming a worship leader in a church. That's why when I, when I left for college, I was a music major. I was already leading worship in a church. I was also in several uh, bands that traveled around and sang. And that, I believed it was my calling. So I wanted to go to college to get some really specialized training in doing that in music and leading worship. But while it was my first semester at college, while I was training to be a worship pastor, I got involved in a little small local church and uh, they, they pushed me into teaching Sunday school for the high school group. And I remember the first, and I've shared this before, but the very first weekend, and they really forced me into it because I was like, I'm not a teacher. I've never taught before. I don't want to teach. If I just play guitar, you know, <laughs> that'd be good. They're like, no, we want you to teach. Went in and taught, scared to death, petrified. Taught for a, a half an hour, probably the only time I ever taught for a half an hour. Taught for a half an hour, went back to the dormitory at school and thought, I just discovered what God made me to do. And a week later, I changed my major from music to, uh, to theology. And sometimes this is just the way God works. It's not, not what you expect. 
My question for you is this. What team has God been calling you to? See, notice that Jesus doesn't call the trained. He doesn't call the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests. They were the trained people. They had the degrees and the titles and all that. Jesus called untrained people. Guys like, like fishermen. He didn't call the trained. He trained the called. So what team has God been calling you to serve in? Maybe he's calling you to, to be a grow group leader or to host a, a group at your house, maybe to, to, to greet people as they come in. You say, well, that's no big deal. Could, anyone could do that, right? No, no, not anyone could do it. Only those who God has gifted and fitted for that. Maybe God's gifted you to teach Bible or work with Club W or, or, or work on the tech team or, or worship or youth. But what, what team has God called you to? Because here's what I know. We'll get into this in the weeks to come. But God has created every one of us and given us a gifting to use to serve other people. And we do that on teams. And that takes us to the third thing that we're going to learn here. And that is that the best teams are, they're odd teams. They're, they're strange teams. Now, here what I'm, here's what I mean by this. See, most of us, our natural tendency is to want to be around people who are like us. It's just what we do. I don't know if it's because we just like ourselves a lot or we just, but that's what we do. Like, most of us, we like being around people who like to do the same activities we like. We like to be around people who like to talk about the same things that we like and, and make the same recreational choices that we make. And a lot of us, we like to be around people who have the same political views. Like, here's what I've noticed. Like, I don't know very many people who like to be around people who vote differently than they do. I just, well, well, in fact, we've even noticed that in some of our grow group circles, sometimes those groups kind of divide based on political lines. I just noticed that mo most people I know don't go, you know, I really love being in groups with people who vote differently and think differently and live differently and watch different shows because like, I don't know what to talk about. I don't know how to relate to them. Their theology is different. Their political views, their cultural stuff. And yet think about it this way. If you were to make, you know, if you were to do that, like all of your close friends and all the teams that you serve on, if they were just like you, it would be like, it would be like having a worship band where everyone played the drums. <laughs> that would just be, it's probably been done, but that's weird, right? What you need are, you need people who are different. You need someone who plays the electric guitar. You need someone who plays the bass and maybe some keyboards. And you need people who sing different parts. That's what makes the, the best bands are bands where everyone has different kids. They don't sit down and the bass player goes, well, I don't want to be in this band anymore because you guys aren't bass players, you know? That's not what makes a good band. The same thing is true when we, when we serve on teams. In verse 14, he lists the, 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 the disciples who become apostles. And these are very different people. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, who was his brother, and James and John. So some of them were brothers. And Philip and Bartholomew, they didn't know any of those guys in there. They weren't related. They weren't brothers. It was Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus. There was Simon, who was called the Zealot. There was Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a, a traitor. And really, Jesus picks a, a really odd team. I mean, John is young. He's some scholars think he's at least 10 years younger than any other disciple. Think he felt a little weird being on a team with all these older guys. Some of them were married and some of them were not. So that probably, you know, there's probably some weird conversations. And again, if the guys who were married were probably, you know, thinking of the guys who were not. Well, you don't even know what life is like right now. And so there's probably some awkward situations. Simon the Zealot, this, this guy is basically today, we would consider him to be a terrorist. 
He's involved in a group that carries out kidnappings and ambushes and attacks on Rome. And then you've got Matthew, who worked for the Roman government. He was, hey, this is a guy who collected taxes. It's amazing that one of them didn't kill the other. These guys would never eat lunch together. They would never, ever have hung out together. And yet Jesus puts them on the same team. Some were, some were fishermen, completely untrained. Um, some were brothers and some were strangers. Some were leaders, followers, extroverts, introverts. I just kind of imagine like I, every year when the, when the um, church has its annual business meeting and we vote in new deacons right afterwards, the deacons have a quick meeting to, to kind of get organized. And I kind of picture like right after this meeting, these guys sit down around a table and they look and they're like, are you kidding me? I got to serve on a team with that guy? I, do you know how that guy lives, Jesus? Do you know what that guy does for a living? Do you know what that guy watches on TV? And I was thinking about it, like at Gateway, we, we kind of have some odd leadership teams, to say the least, you know? Like I'm just, I'm thinking about the, the pastoral staff, about our elders. Um, some of our pastors are, are, have been formally trained and some, of our, some have not, not been formally trained in biblical education at all. Some are abstract thinkers and some are concrete thinkers. So for those of you who lead teams, you know how fun that is, right? When you've got people who only think in concrete terms and people are always thinking in analogies and that kind of stuff and trying to get them together is, is we have some people who are counselors, you know, they're just always kind of looking for ways to, to help people want to understand one another. Some people are not, well, they're just not counselors. Um, you know, we have some people who are extroverts, some who are introverts, some people who, who tuck in their shirts, and some of us who will never, ever do that. We have people who like meetings and people who don't. So that's always fun to plan a meeting. How long should it go? And, you know, when are they just going to walk out on me? And, you know, some are, some are glass half full and some are glass half empty and some are organized and some are, we can just go in their office, you know, and they're not, some, some of the pastors are really cool and some are, you know, anyways, uh, we're just really different. We're really different. But here's the most important thing. Here's what makes a great team. When Jesus is at the center of that team. Now, sometimes we get on teams that are what we would call cause-centered they're centered around a cause. Some of you, you have jobs like that, right? When I was back, when, when I was in graduate school, uh, I had a secular job. I was working for a company that uh, basically what we did is uh, we represented different um, major food manufacturers. And our, one of our biggest clients was a, it was a pet food company. So, so we kind of, we were a cause, I had a cause-centered team. It was all about pet food. It was all, so I'd go into Fred Meyers and I'd go into Safeway. And my job was just to get the pet food that we represented in the best spot in the pet food aisle. Sometimes we'd go to conferences that were all about pet food. And sometimes we'd have meetings and it was all, we'd talk about pet food. And I, we used to actually have meetings, I'm not kidding you, where you, had, you were required to, to, to try the pet food. It was, it was very cause-centered, you know. But gospel teams are different because gospel teams are about a person. We're about Jesus Christ. The best teams are not cause-centered. We are, we are Christ-centered. See, when our teams are Christ-centered, that means we can team up with people who are not like us, people who we might disagree with on all sorts of things, people who have different points of view and personalities that may be even great on us, but we are united in Jesus Christ, and he's kind of our glue because the closer we, each of us individually get to Christ, the tighter we get together as a team. Now, 
our natural tendency in life is going is to, to be, try to be in groups of people that we are comfortable with. And you're going to find this is true in your girl group, on your various ministry teams. But Jesus picks a diverse team, people with different personalities and talents and strengths. And I would just pose to you that this is something that we probably need. And instead of running from these things, they're probably things we should embrace and gravitate towards. Well, let's get on to number four. Number four is this. This is a team of people who were under authority before they were in authority. This is very important. Under authority before in authority. In verse 13. And when the day came, Jesus called his disciples and he chose from them 12 whom he named to be apostles. Two important words to notice here. The first word is the word disciple. So a disciple is just kind of a generic learner, a student, a teacher. In those days, it would have been a teacher of a rabbi. Jesus was a rabbi. Jesus had disciples. Most Pharisees had disciples. Scribes had disciples. Now these disciples of Jesus would have been people who were under his authority. They would, they, he was their teacher. They would listen to him. They would take notes. They would learn. He would tell them to do things and, and they would obey him. And Jesus had hundreds, maybe thousands of disciples at this point. People came to hear and to learn and, and to be his disciples. And this group would have included Peter and the other 11. Jesus has already met Peter, already met James, already met John, already called them to follow him. And they are kind of in, they're in this big group of people. They're just one or 12 of a group of hundreds or thousands. And now Jesus calls them out to be, and this is a different word, the word apostle. Now the word apostle just basically means one who is sent. And the word would have been used to describe maybe, maybe there was a king who wanted to point, uh, appoint an ambassador to represent him, maybe to go to another country or to another king or nation or meeting. And this, this apostle, this person would go with the authority of that king. So he would be able to speak and make decisions with authority for his king. That's what an apostle was. So Jesus takes 12 men who were at first under his authority and now he's going to give them a new job description and put them in authority while being under authority at the same time. Now there's several kinds of apostles that we find in the New Testament. The first kind of apostle is actually a person, not a group, and that's the Lord Jesus himself. In Hebrews 3, 1, it tells us that Jesus is, we would say, the capital T, the apostle. He's the apostle from which all other apostles come. And in Jesus, when you think about it, he's an apostle because he came from heaven to earth as a representative. He represented the Trinity, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He came as an, an, an ambassador from heaven to earth. That's why Jesus says things like, you know, as the Father has sent me. He was ambassador. But here, we're talking about what we might call the office of capital A apostles. Capital A apostles. So Jesus hand selects 12 men. It's a fixed number. And later on, when Judas kind of falls out, He'll, they'll choose one more person to take his place. So there'll be 12. It's, it's symbolic because they're kind of representing it. God says, I'm doing something new here. He used to have 12 tribes of Israel and I'm going to have 12 apostles. And the requirements were that these were men who would have been chosen by Jesus and, and eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus. In fact, later Jesus will call Paul to be an apostle, but Jesus will come down off his throne and appear to Paul and call him to be that apostle. These are men who are given special authority 
They're foundational, it tells us in Ephesians, in, in, in creating the church, and God used them to write New Testament books. Now, there are no capital A apostles today. If anyone tells you that they are a capital A apostle, just turn around and walk away as fast as you can. Now, I say that because for some reason, and, and this has happened occasionally throughout church history, but there's a season where people start doing this. And what I've noticed lately is um, there are several major pastors in the United States who have come out recently and said that they are, in fact, capital A apostles. They claim that Jesus has, has chosen them specifically to be a capital A apostle and they can speak with authority, with the authority of apostles who wrote the New Testament. <laughs> Again, if you, if you meet one of those guys, if you're, you know, you just walk away if you're listening to the CD, just, just turn it off. There are no capital A apostles today. Now, there's a third group, and there's a little bit of debate about this, uh, people that we would call maybe smaller case apostles. And this is not the office of apostle. This is the gift of apostle. You can find this in 1 Corinthians 12. It's actually listed as a spiritual gift that God has chosen some as apostles, just as he's chosen some as prophets and teachers and those who serve. And it's a, it's a capacity... To, to go out to other cultures. So this is what some te churches will teach you. That it's the gift of like being a missionary. So some churches today will say it's, it's the missionary gift. People who are able to go to other cultures and, and preach the gospel in those cultures and plant churches in other places. Kind of lowercase apostles. Now, here's the, here's the thing I want to caution you on. There are people in the church today who want to be in authority but they don't want to be under authority. They want, to, they want to come to church and boss people around. Maybe they, maybe they have a job where they just get bossed around, so they're like, I'm going to go to church, and I just want to boss people around. I just want to tell some people what to do. They, they just want to get a title. They want to get the T-shirt, you know, staff, listen to me. Uh, they, they don't want to be under anyone else's authority, which is always, always dangerous. Okay, even if you are a person who's in authority in the church, you need to be under someone's authority. So like at, at Gateway, um, every leader who has authority is also under authority. And I'm not even going to try to flowchart this for you. Let me just quickly explain this. So for instance, our pastors are considered elders uh, scripturally and constitutionally of the way our church is set up. So the way we're set up, the, the pastoral staff are under my authority as the lead elder. So they're under my authority and they, they fill out, you know, weekly time audits so we know how people spent their time. Did they do it wisely? And, you know, we, we, have, we give financial accounts every month of how we spend money and there's a lot of accounting that takes place and sometimes we'll have to have a discussion like, did you really say that? <laughs> did you really do that? You know, there's some accounting accountability. Our pastors have accountability, but they're also under my accountability. I'm under the deacon board's uh, authority, and that's constitutionally. So the way our constitution is set up, and you know, they can sit me down at any time and say, you know, why did you say that? Why do you, why do you hate cats so much? You know, what's the, what's the problem? You know, we can, we can have those discussions because I'm under their authority. I'm accountable to them. Now here's where it gets fun. The deacon board are also under my accountability. They're accountable to me because I'm an elder and because they're deacons. You're like, well, how does that work? How can two groups of people be accountable to each other? I'd be like, it doesn't flow chart well, but it actually works very well in our church. And so I'm accountable to them. They're accountable to me. Um, you know, uh, they're accountable to you. 
as the saying goes, you know, you vote our deacons into office, and if you can vote them into office, you can, you know, if I brought you into this world, isn't that what my mom always said? I brought you into this world, I take you out of it, right? You know, they're under your authority, and, and yet you're to submit to the authority of the elders. So there's all this, like, the point is this. God may give you authority at times in the church, but you need to always be under the authority of someone. Why? Because we're all sinners. Because we all make bad decisions. We all do dumb things at times. And we need people who love us enough to correct us so we don't keep going down a bad path. So we don't go from dumb to dumber, you know? We need, we need to listen to people in authority and to submit as unto God. Now, I say this because... Most Christians today don't want to be under spiritual authority. This is just what I'm finding. So for instance, there's a lot of Christians who um, never take the time to seek out another spiritually mature person to whom they will voluntarily be accountable. Here's what I mean. Every now and then, I'll have someone come to me. Usually it's a guy who's in his 20s. Usually he he's, he's, hasn't been married very long, just had a kid, and this will happen. They'll come to me and say, Pastor, I, you know, I just, I need someone who will hold me accountable. I need someone who will sit down with me every other week or so and say, hey, have you been getting on the internet? Did you look at porn this week? Did you make a bad decision? Like just point blank, just ask me the question. Just make me accountable. I want someone you can call me anytime, anyplace, and I'll tell you what I'm doing. I'll tell you where I'm at. I need someone to get in my face because I know if I don't, I'm going to mess up my marriage. I'm going to mess up my family. I want to be accountable. I'm asking you, would you please exercise authority over me? Now, here's what I'm telling you. This happens every now and then, but it doesn't happen very often. It's not very often that the average Christian finds someone and says, I need you to hold me accountable. And yet we need that. In fact, what I find in the church today is a lot of people just, in fact, they don't even want to become church members because there's a fear if I become a member of this church, they might start holding me accountable. Or here's something that I have happen every now and then. It's happened a couple of times in the years that I've been at Gateway. And I've learned, you know, what it means now. So sometimes I'll have someone come to me and say, hey, pastor, <laughs> it's always, they're a little frantic. Pastor, um, I'm a member of the church and I don't want to be a member anymore. And I'd like to not be a member effective immediately. Like right now. Can you do that? Can I not be a member right now? And usually what I'll tell people is, uh, no. <laughs> we voted you into membership and if you want, we'll vote you out. But we're not having a meeting right now because here's what I've learned. When someone comes to me and wants to not be a member right now, it's because they know that we're about to find out something. And they don't want to be held accountable. Here's what they don't know. I'd hold them accountable anyways, whether they were a member or not. Why? Because that's what you do when you love someone. People who decide, I don't like a decision my church made. I don't like something the leaders did. So I'll just leave. I'll just go somewhere else. People who avoid ministry settings where they might be held accountable, avoid relationships with people who want to talk about spiritual things and might hold them accountable. But these 12 men, first they were under authority and then they were given authority. But as we'll see in the, in the next few years, they're always under the authority of Jesus. And that takes us to point five. At times, God will raise up what I call lowercase leaders. So here's another thing we notice with this team of men. Now, Jesus ought to be the leader of every team. 
that Christians get on, whether it be in your marriage, that's a team in your family, Jesus should be at the helm, or whether it's at a, at a church, whether it's with a staff, whether it's the deacon board, wherever that is, Jesus should always be the leader of that team. But often, God will raise up what I call lowercase leaders to lead at times. So over time, Peter becomes the lowercase leader of the apostles. In fact, every list of apostles always puts Peter first and Judas last. In verse 14, Simon, whom he named Peter, and then the other 11. Now, having said that, understanding that at times God will lead individuals who will kind of rise to the top and be what I call lowercase leaders. The principle is this, that leadership in God's economy is not like leadership in the world. Because we have a leader who came as one who served. The Bible says Jesus is not, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus left his throne in heaven where his will is always done, where he's always loved and always worshiped. And he came down here to this dirt pile, right, where he was often ignored, where he was often mocked and ridiculed and, and people pushed back on him. He was often not worshiped, reviled and rejected. But he came here not to be served, but to serve. And he came as our example. What, what does it mean if God leads you to a place in life where you become a leader of a team? It means this, that that is the place where you lead by serving. This is how Christians lead. So for instance, the Bible tells us that the way that a husband leads his family is he serves them. The Bible says a husband leads his family the way Christ led the church. How did Jesus lead the church? Well, he died for the church. <laughs> he went to the cross for the church. He bore the shame and the sin of the church. The way a husband leads his family is he serves that, that, so that doesn't mean he gets the remote. It means he gives the remote, right? It means he gives up his place, the place of honor, and he serves others. That's the way parents lead their, their kids is by serving them. That's the way a boss leads is by serving those who work for him, not the other way around as it's often in our world. That's the way a, a teacher and our school system today really leads us by serving the needs of the kids. It's how, for those of you who are grow group leaders, that's how a grow group leader leads is by serving the needs of the people in their group, right? That's the way parking lot attendants help is, right? When you come in, they, they're, they're looking for a spot for you. They, come, they, they, they want to serve you. It's the way it works. When someone's leading worship, the way you, you lead worship is not by, you know, putting on a performance and picking the songs you like. It's about serving other people. So worship leader wants to ask, I wonder what songs the people would like to sing. And I wonder what songs would really be encouraging to them. We lead by serving. So here's our model. Jesus is our, is our capital L leader, if you will. And we follow him. We follow his lead. We follow his agenda. When God puts us in a position of leading as a lowercase leader then we remember that we live under the authority of Jesus and we follow his example. And our goal is to lead others in a way that, that brings glory to God, not to us. And it influences other people with the love of God and the gospel and we look for ways to serve and bless other people. And let me just turn that around. And for, the, for those of us under leadership, that means also we are those who pray for our leaders and support our leaders and love 
our leaders. And I say this because I worry about this. I mean, we, we live in a very divisive uh, culture today. And, and in our culture, it seems like most of the time, all we want to do is put down our leaders. Now I'm talking political here, but all we want to do is criticize leaders, put down leaders, mock leaders, post mean things about them on Facebook. But my question for you is this, how often as Christians do we pray for them? How often do we look for ways to serve them? See, here's what scares me. This, is, this has made its way into the church. Jesus never called us to be those who just criticize all the time. Jesus called us to be people who pray. We pray for our leaders. We, we pray for those. We love those who even persecute us. See, this is the attitude of Christ. So for those of us in whatever places where there are people over us who lead us, we're those who pray for them. We're those who look for ways to encourage and support them. And the last thing I want to mention, and we're out of time here, so we'll, we'll cover this more in the weeks to come, but I just want to say this. Jesus' apostles were people who never stopped following him. They followed him until the end. They were not, they, they, they didn't retire at some point. It wasn't like, you know, John was like, well, I'm 55 now. I don't have to be an apostle anymore. They were, they were appointed to serve Jesus until the day they breathed their last. Now, these were men who were far from perfect. I mean, at times they lacked spiritual understanding. We're going to see in the future where Jesus teaches a parable and then the disciples are like, huh? And Jesus is like, how dull are you guys? And, you know, there are going to be times when they're super proud and where they lack faith and they're cowards. And, and even Judas kind of drops out shamefully, tragically. But after the ascension, after Jesus is resurrected and goes to heaven, these are guys who come out of hiding and they start proclaiming the gospel and start training other believers. They become missionaries. They plant churches. They wrote New Testament books. And the Bible doesn't tell us how they finished. But uh, there are some historical sources that do. One book is called Fox's Book of Martyrs, written in 1559, and it's a compilation of, of many great Christians, but, um, but of the apostles as well. And it tells us how things ended for them. Really quick, just to, just to show you how this works. So Jesus appoints these 12 guys. And we know one of them fell. That was Judas. And he's kind of out of the picture. But what about the other 11? What did it mean for them to be appointed as apostles? Did they ever retire? In fact, no, they didn't. James, the brother of John, was the first apostle to be martyred. Probably about 10 years um, later. He was martyred by the sword. They just, somebody came up and they didn't like the gospel and they didn't like him and they told him to stop preaching the gospel and he wouldn't so they pulled out a sword and they killed him. That was, that was his reward. That's how he retired from being an apostle. And then there was Thomas. Thomas who traveled extensively in India, spread the gospel, planted churches and the way that he was rewarded was he was also put to death by a sword. And then there was Simon. Simon for a while was a leader in the, in the church in Jerusalem, eventually made his way to Egypt, preached the gospel there, and he was, he was crucified, nailed to a cross and crucified like Jesus. See, sometimes following Jesus means we'll be treated like Jesus. Not like you hear in a lot of churches today. Not like you read in a lot of books today where people are like, you know, well, Jesus just wants you to to, to live in prosperity and, and have lots of money and be comfortable and, and no suffering. In other words, a lot of times what you hear today is that, that uh, if you follow Jesus, you'll be more liked than Jesus, more successful than Jesus, have more friends than Jesus, be more admired than Jesus, won't have to carry a cross like Jesus did, even though he said you would. 
It's not exactly what these apostles experienced. Bartholomew, the Bible tells us nothing about him, but, but history tells us that he went to India, preached in India, translated the gospel of Matthew into their language, and then he was brutally beaten to a pulp by a crowd, and then crucified and then beheaded. I guess they just wanted to make sure he wasn't coming back. So they beat him up, then they crucified him, then they beheaded him. Andrew was told that he had to stop proclaiming the gospel, and if he didn't stop, he would be crucified on a cross. Let me ask you, what would you do if someone came up and said, you know what, you've got to stop doing this. We don't want to hear the gospel. And if you don't stop, we're going to nail you across just like we did Jesus. Well, Andrew didn't stop preaching. And he was crucified just as his Lord was. Matthew planted churches in Ethiopia and Egypt, wrote his gospel, and was killed with the spear. No, no mega church for him, but Matthew did get a pretty good book deal. Uh, Philip went on to preach as a missionary for years. His reward was he was stoned to death. They basically, uh, what they did is they dug a hole, buried him up to his waist, and then they pelted him with stones until he was dead. And then again, that wasn't good enough, so they put him on a cross and crucified him. Peter was condemned to death under Nero, and he was crucified. When they came to crucify him, this is what Peter said. Peter said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Lord. So he insisted that he be crucified upside down. John was condemned to death um, to be killed in a boiled, basically, in a big pot of boiling oil. <laughs> they wanted to do something original with him. So they put him in the steel cage, lowered him down in the boiling oil, but when he came up, it says that nothing happened to him. He was still alive. It freaked out the officials. They weren't allowed to carry out the death sentence twice, so they exiled him to an island of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation, and then later he came back, uh, eventually allowed him to return to Ephesus where he wrote more books of the Bible, died at the age, we're told, of about 100, the only disciple to, to, to live that long, to not die through martyrdom. These were men who never, ever, ever retired from following Jesus. And I'm so grateful still to this day for people in my life, people in our church, people who, when most people their age have retired, just taken it easy, we have people in our church who refuse to stop serving Jesus. They may not be working at their job anymore, but they have not retired. They still serve. They still serve you. I could point out so many people, but in fact, one person who really comes to my mind because I can see her this morning, she probably won't like that I'm going to say this, but I'm so grateful for June Corkum and for her husband, for God bringing them to our church. And, and for June, a couple years ago, just coming and saying, you know, I really would like to serve any way that I can. And, and we just decided the way she could serve was leading women's ministry. And so for the last couple years, and some people don't know this, she, didn't, she never got paid for her job, um, you know, except for getting to be around us, I guess. But you know, she didn't get paid. She had an office. She came out and put, she, she worked in office hours. She came to staff meetings. She's discipled. She's put on events. She has served God so faithfully over the past few years. Never retired, continuing to serve God. You might know her husband. He's often out in the parking lot um, trying to help you find a parking spot and often trying to extort money from you. Never give him money, all right, when he asks for it. But I am so thankful for this couple and the way that they never, ever stop serving Jesus. And, and June, we appreciate you and your husband so much, and I'm sorry to put you... I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but you are absolutely an inspiration to so many of us. 
Folks, may we be like those men, like those disciples who never retire from serving our God and our Savior. Amen. I'm going to pray for us.